Christmas. Bad stuff, bad warnings, call to repentance, being whipsawed between these two poles of God's threatening judgment and promised restoration. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, sometimes we, you know, we, we wonder, where's the resolution? Well, you know the resolution is in the cross. You know the resolution is in the cross. The judgment is real and blessing is real and blessing is yours because judgment was visited upon Christ. So in Joel, you see some of these same themes, and, and yet in Joel, you have this wonderful, wonderful verse, the 28th verse of chapter 2. And as we'll see, it's like a hinge, and it encourages us to look in two directions. So let me read this verse in the broader context of Joel chapter 2, which is in, of course, the broader context of the total prophecy of Joel. Joel 2, beginning at verse 18. And then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. And here we go. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will Pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape 
as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Help us this morning to connect the dots. Help us to see this little verse in this little book hidden in these 66 books. Help us to see in it the wonder of your purpose and intention. God, help us this morning to be caught up in the beauty and the wonder of what it is you're doing, we pray. And we thank you that you're doing it not just for us, but you're doing it for countless hundreds and thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands and millions from every race and nation and tribe and tongue across the face of the earth so that Jesus might be Lord of all. Help us, Lord, to be caught up in the wonder of it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'll tell you, I read the first part of the passage I read, those verses from Joel 2, and I mean, I don't know about you, but it's, it's like Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, bring it, fulfill it, complete it. I want to be there. I want to be there. I want to be where those vats are full. I want to be where those stalls are filled with grain. As Isaiah 35 says, I want to be in that place where the deserts are blooming, exploding with color, with the crocus and the tulips and the daffodils and every other conceivable bloom. I want to be there. I'm weary of the desert. I'm weary of the journey. I'm weary of the struggle. But even in the midst of the struggle, there is good reason to be glad and to be hopeful. There's so much reason to celebrate and rejoice. The, the Olympics are coming to a close. The games of the 29th Olympiad, which started, I'm, I'm losing track. I thought it was like 10 days, but I think it's already 16. I think it was two weeks ago Friday. Was it two weeks ago Friday that, that we had that explosion of color and stuff in Beijing? And, you know, as Zach said, for the last 14 days, it's been record-breaking performance after record-breaking performance and all of this stuff. And, and someone made the observation that I'm sure a lot of you have made, I, I'm sure you've thought about it, that it's a remarkable thing to watch the nations of the world come together. Isn't it? I mean, it's a remarkable thing to watch the nations of the world come together and gather under that banner with the five circles representing the five inhabited continents, people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue coming together to compete, to contest, to perform, to watch athletes from the nations of the world do that and then after the competition is over, after 
the race is run, to see the competitors embrace each other, to watch, maybe you watched some of this last night, it's remarkable to watch marathoners running in 85 degree heat and Beijing, China humidity, passing water bottles to each other from different countries doing that. And then the games end. And the charade is over. And the Georgians go back to Georgia and the Russians go back to Russia. And the Iraqis go back to Iraq, and the Iranians go back to Iran, and the Afghanis go back to Afghanistan. And the charade is over. Now, there's something about the Olympics. I don't know about you, but there's something about the Olympics that does something to my heart. It captures a longing that I have and that I suspect you have and that I suspect every human being has. It's the longing for peace among the nations. It's the longing for peace between specific peoples. Among the nations, the multitude and diversity of nations, but between specific people groups, between the Kurds, and the Turks, between Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics, between blacks and whites, between Jews and Palestinians. There's a long, I remember when I was in high school, you know, I mean, this longing that you have and that I have is so deeply woven, woven into the fabric of your existence that it pokes its head up, it sticks out at the most surprising and unlikely of places even when you're not a Christian. I remember as a 16-year-old junior in high school listening to a news report late at night about the Vietnam War and about tensions between the great superpowers of the day, the United States and Russia. And I remember thinking as a 16-year-old, if only I could speak to the United Nations General Assembly, if only for five or ten minutes I could speak to them, I could persuade them to lay down their arms and for the sake of future generations pursue peace. That's how deeply woven into the fabric of your existence the longing for peace is. Not just personal peace, but peace between you and those outside your own skin. Some of you in this room have suffered some form of ism, right? Genderism, racism, classism, socioeconomic standingism. And there's something in the fabric of your being that longs for that to be gone and for there to be peace, even between the most mortal of enemies. Human beings are such crazy creatures. They're characterized by both of these realities, by noble thoughts and noble desires, and by a seeming 
inexhaustible capacity for cruelty and meanness and brutality. Read Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a 16th century mathematician, tremendously insightful about the human condition. He wrote this, The more enlightened we are, the more greatness and vileness we discover in man. Man's dualism is so obvious that some people thought we had two souls. Who is it who said, I am not a man, I am a civil war, and the losses are great on both sides? You can't be honest and deny either of these realities as you look at human beings, as you look at the history of humankind, as you look at the Olympics, and as you look at what flows out of the Olympics from this deeply felt longing expressed in a charade, the charade of peace, the charade of unity, to what flows out of it, and that is ongoing tensions and animosities and even hatreds among the nations and between people groups. Only the Bible gives us an explanation for why those two things are there. Only the Bible gives us an explanation for why those two things are there. The longings, the desires, and even the nobility that Pascal refers to on the one hand is a function of the fact that we're created in the image of God, created with dignity and value and worth, a dignity that is given and conferred, that is rooted in the eternal existence of the infinite personal God who is really there and who himself has dignity, intrinsic and inexhaustible dignity, and who in his creation confers that dignity upon his image bearers, making human beings something different from everything else in the whole of the creation. That's why CareNet matters. That's why Trevor matters. Trevor is not simply a more complex neurochemical organism. Trevor is not just a more complicated earthworm. He's a human being with a unique dignity that sets him apart from the rest of the creation given to him by God. And that's why the best surgeons, the best technicians in all the world will open up his chest tomorrow, take his little heart out of his chest, connect him to a machine, and seek to repair that chest, that heart, and put it back into his chest so that they can do it again in six months. So they can do it again when he's three years old. So that this, you don't do that. And please... Don't trivialize what I'm saying. You don't do those things for earthworms. You do them for human beings who have dignity because they are created in the image of God. And yet, the Bible also explains 
how it is that human beings with such extraordinary dignity capable of such unconceivable beauty and loveliness and deep longings and desires can at the same time be so vicious and cruel. And just think about yourself, that cruelty, that viciousness, while we can paste over it, you know, kind of like a facelift, that's kind of what the Olympics is. It's kind of like an international facelift. Okay, let's, let's do something cosmetic here to make it all look better and seem better when behind it there's something desperately bad and wrong. What is it that accounts for what is so desperately bad and cruel and mean and vile and wicked about us? It is the fall. It is the fall. It is sin and the fall. And so human beings, on the one hand, possess this great dignity. On the other hand, are capable of such extraordinary cruelty and brutality. And not just in Pol Pot's Cambodia or Idi Amin's Uganda, but in our marriages and in our families, in our churches. It's tough to root it out, isn't it? It's deep. It's as deep as are the longings. And again, only the Bible gives us an explanation. It's mysterious. It's perplexing. I don't have all the answers. We had a bunch of 20-somethings in our home on Friday night. The first question they asked is, where does evil come from? How am I supposed to know? I wasn't there. All I know is that it's real. Real. And the resolution of the God of heaven and earth is to do something about it. And really that's what brings us with all of that. I'm sorry for the long introduction. But sometimes you've got to have long introductions to see particular things in the context of the whole. And as I suggested, Joel chapter 2, and I'll, I'll try to be somewhat brief about this, but I may have to come back to it next week kind of for, for a, you know, a second visit. It's only understanding the whole, the whole of our circumstance, the whole of our situation that Joel 2 verse 28 makes any sense at all. And that's why the long, long introduction Because Joel chapter 2 encourages us to take a look in both directions. It is like a hinge. And from that hinge, you look backwards in the first instance. And you try to set this promise of the outpouring of the Spirit, verse 28, an outpouring which is described in a kind of a metaphorical way in the previous verses, not that those verses are to be taken as some sort of empty metaphor. They're, they're full of substance and physicality and materiality. You're not describing things that might be. They're describing things that will be somehow in some way. But the outpouring of the Spirit is, is given some, some pegs upon which 
to hang things, some, some windows, if you will, through which we can peer to seek some understanding of what it will look like for the Spirit to be poured out on all flesh. It's this, this image of abundance and fullness and unbelievable prosperity. Happiness, content, contentment. And what's behind this promise of the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh is certainly the initial catastrophe of the fall and the disobedience of Adam and Eve, which plunged the whole of humankind into this condition of wreckage. But even more specifically, and we really do see this, and we really can connect these dots as we look forward to the fulfillment of this promise, but we've got to look backwards before we can look forward more specifically What's in view is Genesis chapter 10. And what God did, I'm sorry, chapter 11, and what God did as a further act of judgment upon a people who sought to assert themselves and establish themselves as king and God. Look at the first nine verses of Genesis 11. I'll read them quickly, make a couple of comments. And then we'll go back to Joel 2 and then we'll move on from Joel 2 to the fulfillment of it. Genesis 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Five times, just note this, five times in this passage the word translated language is used in this passage. Five times. Language, words, big deal. Sounds important. When something is repeated, recognize it. It's important. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now up to that point, you see what's happening, don't you? There are a couple of critical things that are happening. Number one, there is a fear of being dispersed and because of this fear of being dispersed, the people who are one and who have a common language come together to try to stay together, to try to stay united. Now that in itself is not a bad thing. Now, trust me, the day will come when the nations of the earth will be gathered together as one people, united in one place. So the impulse, the instinct itself to be united is native to us, inbred, born into us, and it will be fulfilled. But you see here in this text, that desire to be united, to be together, is leavened by an arrogance and a pride. And where do you see that arrogance and that pride? You see it in two respects. You see it first in the desire of this people to come together to build for themselves a temple which will reach where? Into the heavens. 
And who do you suppose might be seated on the throne at the apex, at the top of that temple as it reaches up into the heavens? Man himself. It's not a throne for God. And you know that because the text makes clear to us that their whole motivation, their whole desire is this next thing, building this city, building this tower in order to make a name for themselves. There's a pattern through the early chapters of Genesis of people wanting to make names for themselves. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, Enoch had a son. Verse 17 of Genesis 4. And when he, Enoch, built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son. He built it to the honor and the glory of his son. But really and truly, who was he building the city in the honor of and for the glory of himself, the one who fathered the son. I mean, this is so deeply ingrained in us. Think about why you do what you do. Think even about why you ask your kids to do what you ask them to do. I said this 25 years ago in a sermon when Barbara and I were living over in Brandon, I got myself in some hot water about it. I said, you know, most of your parents don't, most of you parents don't want your kids to get good grades for them. You want them to get good grades for you so that you look good. That's why you like to talk about the letters that you get from places like Duke and Harvard. And I mean, you don't hear the Malones talking about the fact that they got letters from Seminole County Community College. How come? How come? Because it doesn't clothe me in prestige and honor. You may hear us mumble under our breaths. We were just lucky to get him into college. And even luckier to get him out of college. In four years, each one, miracle of miracles. How deeply ingrained this stuff is in us. We build cities to honor our own names. You see the same thing a little bit later in Genesis when Nimrod, the great warrior, verse 8 of chapter 10, is called the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, I had a friend who named his hunting dog Nimrod. Great hunter before the Lord. And then verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar, the very land that we read about now in chapter 11 of Genesis. Nimrod was there. And what did Nimrod do after God confused the languages? He built cities. But look at what he did after he built cities. From there, he went into Assyria and he built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. 
and that is the great city. And the implication is that after Nimrod got finished here, he went to another place and subjugated peoples and built more cities to extend his kingdom. And that's what we do. That's what we do. And all of this provokes God. Chapter 11 of Genesis says, verse 5, all of this provokes God to come down, to come down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now remember, for those of you who have heard me make this observation before, remember, when the Lord comes down, He doesn't come down because he has to get close enough to be able to see what they're doing. The God of the Bible is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is all of those omnis. He is omniscient, which means he knows everything. He doesn't need to come down in order to learn or understand. This is a pun, if you will. It is a pun on the puniness of the work of mankind. He has to come down to see it on the one hand because it's so small. I think I've used this image with you before. If you were to have stood at the base of the World Trade Center, either of those buildings before they came down and If you had looked up, you would have thought to yourself, my, that reaches all the way to the heavens. And if you turn it on its side, you can walk the distance of it in five minutes. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Why does God come down to investigate, to explore, to look because of the lofty pride and arrogance of a united human race. That's, that's what is, is replicated or attempting to be replicated at the Olympics. The exaltation of human ingenuity and human athleticism. Look, that's not to strip us of our dignity. As Francis Schaeffer would say, human beings are not a zero, and evangelical Christians need to remember that. We need to remember that while sin is real and corruption is real and human brokenness is real, that does not reduce human beings to zeros. We're different from the worms. And yet there is this pride and this arrogance and this self-exaltation which God comes down to see and because of which God, and I don't understand how he does this. I don't understand how this works. I just know that the infinite, personal, and eternal God, the one who is really there, is the unseen X factor in the whole of human history. And that unseen X factor comes down at Babel and disperses the peoples and confuses their languages so that they are no longer united, so that they are no longer able to gather as one to raise themselves up in arrogance against the God of heaven heaven and earth who is alone to be exalted and worshipped and praised. 
And so for the rest of human history, because of differences in language and because different cultural habits and cultural institutions grow up as a result of language and because those cultural habits and cultural institutions come in conflict with one another and because people are, as Adam was, as a result of the fall, inherently afraid and because people tend to find their comfort first in those who are like them, and who finding their comfort in those who are like them tend to discriminate in subtle and not so subtle ways against those who are not like them because of all of that. There are tensions and animosities and wars and cruelties that frankly keep the human aspiration to self-exaltation at bay. It is a judgment of God upon human pride and arrogance. And that explains the divisions, the animosities, and the cruelties that exist throughout the course of human history. The striking thing is that God, having visited his judgment upon humankind for its arrogance is not finished with humankind. He does not abandon us to ourselves. He does not leave us alone. He gives us this 28th verse. He inserts this 28th verse of Joel chapter 2, this little verse inside this little book stuck between Hosea and Amos in the midst of 65 other books as a window of hope that points us in the direction of the renovation, the renovation and the restoration of humankind. And where do you see the fulfillment of it? I'm sure that many of you know you see the fulfillment of it in the second chapter of Acts, in the first verses of that second chapter. When the day of Pentecost arrived, listen to the language and listen to how reminiscent it is of Genesis chapter 11. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They're all together. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because... Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and they said, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And this isn't in the text, but what they heard was the same message, a single message. 
Bruce Waltke mentions in his commentary on Genesis, yes, it is true. Everything goes back to Genesis. As Bruce Waltke writes, as he connects these dots between Genesis 11 and Acts chapter 2, the Spirit does not remove diverse languages, but allows regenerate people to hear and understand one another. The Spirit alters the effect of their languages from deconstructing and destroying the community to reconstructing the new community of the church. With the Holy Spirit, we hear and understand. Without Him, we misunderstand through our fear, distrust, and self-ambition. What is Pentecost? Pentecost is a reversal of the curse of Genesis chapter 11. Yes, the diversity of languages are there. But all of these people from every nation under heaven, all of these people gathered together in one place, hear one message, the gospel message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his death for sinners. And as you read further in Acts chapter 2, you know that as Peter preaches the death and resurrection of Christ, people are cut to the quick, cut to the core. And people from all of these nations are now gathered as one people, hearing the same language, if you will, and in fact themselves becoming those who would speak that same language as they went back to their respective people groups. But when they went back, they went back as citizens of a different kingdom, a nation in the midst of the nations in which there is no respecter of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic standing, color of skin, or any of the rest, but one people united by the common language of the gospel. Now you look at the text, and this is so much fun. I, I mean, the Bible is so much fun. Is it hard? Yeah. Do you have to stay at it? Do you have to keep reading it and rereading it and pressing it ever more deeply into your souls? Yeah, you do. Do you need the Holy Spirit to? Yeah, absolutely. But stay with it because it is just way fun. You look at the text and you say, well, these were all Jews and some Gentile proselytes. How are they representatives of all of the nations of the earth? Well, here's the wonderful thing. There isn't one Pentecost in the book of Acts. There are three Pentecosts in the book of Acts. If you're going to, I really believe this, if you're going to get, this sounds so, I don't mean to sound patronizing or condescending or anything of the kind as I say this, but if you're going to get the book of Acts, you've got to keep in mind Jesus commissioning the church. And when he commissions the church, he says the Holy Spirit is going to make you my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem alone? I don't think so. In Judea and Samaria. And so if you go to Acts chapter 8... And you read about Philip preaching the gospel in Samaria. Peter and John later come to Samaria and they pray for those who have responded to the gospel. And what happens? A second Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls again. 
Well, that's just Judea and Samaria. What about the uttermost parts of the earth? Go to Acts chapter 19 and Ephesus. And the believers who are in Ephesus who have heard of the baptism of John but haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul goes to Ephesus and begins to ask them, what's going on? What have you heard? They say, we haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He prays for them and another outpouring. For whom? For the Gentiles. Three Pentecosts. A trinity of Pentecosts. Don't you love biblical numbers? So that all of the nations of the earth, all flesh, not just Jewish flesh, not just flesh which is half Jewish and half Gentile flesh, that would be Samaria, but all flesh feels the outpouring of the Spirit of God in fulfillment of the promise in Joel. And by that outpouring of the Spirit, by that heralding of the gospel and the outpouring of the Spirit, the things that used to separate people no longer do. And it's not a gathering under a banner with five circles representing the five inhabited continents of the world. It is a gathering beneath a throne, the throne of King Jesus, who has promised that out of every race and every nation and every tribe and every tongue, he would gather one people. Now, what stands between Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2? Wow. What stands between Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 is the cross. And you say, well, of course. And maybe this is what we should come back to next week and camp on. Because let me tell you, the cross and an ever-deepening understanding of the cross is the only thing, the only thing that is going to root out of my heart my inherent xenophobia, my fear of those who are different, who are strange to me. It's only understanding with ever-increasing clarity and depth that Jesus, and this is not trifling with the significance of the cross, that Jesus became the stranger so that I might be gathered in. Jesus became the alien so that I might have a home in the presence of God. Jesus became the one cut off, ostracized, unacceptable so that I might be received and made acceptable. And the extent to which that comes into focus for me and I gain clarity about it and depth of understanding about it, it is to that extent that I in turn will be one who receives the alien, the stranger, the one of, about whom otherwise I would feel fear and resistance. But because Christ was the alien and the stranger so that I might be accepted and received in, I then am the one who accepts and receives those 
who are different from me. Across races, across ethnicity, across socioeconomic standing, across political lines. Can you conceive of such a thing? Because of the work of Christ. So what is the greater Beijing? What is the real Beijing? You are. And I am. And the church of Jesus Christ is gathered under his gracious lordship. Let's pray together. Oh God, humble us. Humble us. Bring low our pride. Bring low our fears. Bring low our xenophobias. Oh God, keep us from being afraid of this group or that person or this country or this nationality or this race or this person of this socioeconomic standing. Give us grace, O God, to receive to the extent that you, having been a stranger in our behalf, have received us. Lord, I plead with you that this church would be a place more and more where those distinctions cannot be seen. To the praise of your most glorious name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing just the first and last verses of number 165. Ye servants of God, your master proclaim. Number 165.